You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The concession speech is the only eulogy where the corpse gives the speech, as one author said. The first thing to know about a concession speech is it's never been fun for anyone through history who has had to do it. Like all good citizens, I accept the, the result with good humor and contentment. I pledge As for the progressive cause, I can only repeat what I have so many times declared. The fate of the leader for the time being is of little That's a quadraphonic concession speech because I'm reading the speeches of four people at once. John McCain, Al Gore, Adelaide Stevenson, and Theodore Roosevelt in 1912. The only one out of two races he ran that he had to concede. Everyone runs for the presidency aggressively and wants to win. Yet, while there are a few kinks that I'll get into, every person, certainly in modern times, and for me, modern times for the presidency goes back at least to the 1890s, to the time when there were cars were invented and so were moving pictures. Every presidential contender who lost the election made a concession to the winner directly, to the public, and their supporters. So a bit about these speeches. And I want to let you know, right now at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, you can get your history factoid. This is a great thing to pass on to your friends and social media. If you're a teacher, to pass on to students. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com Com. Right now, we've got a factoid on presidential concession speeches. It's also available at Twitter, at MyHist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. If you're not on Twitter, go to the website and we've got your history factoid there. It's the first of what I hope will be many of these history factoids. In the past, instant communications didn't always allow for a note to the opposing side, but usually a statement was made in the newspaper. And if you were, say, William Jennings Bryan, you could just send a nice telegram to the winner of the presidential election, as he did in 1896 with William McKinley, despite bitter policy differences and substantial feelings about wrongs in American society. He said in his telegram to McKinley, 
We have submitted the issue to the people, and their will is law. William Jennings Bryan. Now, this is after a campaign where he said, the other side, we're going to crucify the working man on a cross of gold. Al Smith, in 1928, was the first presidential contender to concede by radio. Wendell Wilkie, in 1940, running against Franklin Roosevelt on the eve of World War II, used newsreel, the kind of moving talkies that would be inserted into movies that people would go to the theater and see. People of America, I accept the result of the election with complete goodwill. To the thousands who in various organizations supported me, I extend my thanks, and also to those millions who individually voted for me. He used his to make a stirring statement about the need for unity in the wake of fascism. I know that they will continue to work as I shall for the unity of our people in the building of a national defense. Another FDR opponent, Alf Landon, losing to Franklin Roosevelt in 1936, sent this telegram. The President slash Hyde Park, New York slash The Nation Has Spoken. Stop. Every American will accept the verdict and work for the common cause of the good of our country. Stop. That is the spirit of democracy. Stop. You have my sincere congratulations. Slash Alf M. Landon. After the election, whenever he visited Washington, the governor of Kansas was welcome in the White House and visited with FDR. By the way, also on the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, you can get the image of Alf Landon's concession telegraph to Franklin Roosevelt. So definitely in modern times, this has been a process. Adelaide Stevenson was the first to concede to his opponent, Eisenhower, on TV. Are there kinks in this? Sure. You have a slight case in 1944 where Franklin Roosevelt was miffed at another opponent of his, Thomas E. Dewey, that he did not send a telegram of congratulations when he lost the election. However, in public in 1944, Dewey was on the radio saying he'd accept the will of the people. And when he ran again in 1948, this time against Truman, we talked about that in the last cast, he did send a nice note to Truman in 1948. When he did so, he told reporters, It has been grand fun, boys and girls. I enjoyed it immensely. There's also Charles Evans Hughes, whose note to Wilson in 1916 took so long, Hughes said he was still waiting for the results to be codified, so long that President Wilson described his congratulations as moth-eaten. Barry Goldwater didn't concede on election night 1964, but sent a note to LBJ the next morning. That was something that was noticed, and LBJ didn't like very much. There was also a little kink maybe in 2012, if you believe the account of David Axelrod. Axelrod says that Obama was annoyed by Romney's phone call because he seemed to be blaming the loss on the African-American vote in various cities. He just says to Obama, you did a great job of getting out the vote in places like Cleveland and Milwaukee. And Obama, complaining to Axelrod, said, that's what he thinks this was all about. 
But, you know, that's just Axelrod's account. But really, you can go take a straight line from the 1890s to now, and every single contender has made a concession. And that's why there was talk a few weeks ago about whether if Trump were to lose the election, if he would concede. I don't think that's going to be a problem if Hillary Clinton were to lose the election. I'm sure she'll be out there making a concession. Any candidate who doesn't make such a speech is is certainly defying history. And as we'll get into it a little bit, maybe giving up on an opportunity. But you do have a way back example where there was a problem with a concession between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Adams wins in 1796. This is the first of the two contests that they'll have. Jefferson's elected vice president in that contest. Jefferson writes a letter of congratulations to John Adams. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And, you know, you can't do a telegraph, obviously. You can't do anything instantly because you then had to wait for the Electoral College to vote. And results weren't known as easily. But Jefferson's writing from the reports he has, it looks like that you have won and congratulations. But in doing so, Jefferson inadvertently included language saying that he didn't wish to govern men. It seemed like maybe it was too much. He had second thoughts. Was he disavowing his own future race for the presidency? So he sent the letter that he was going to send to John Adams to James Madison. And basically, lacking the CC and forward functions of today's email, he says to Madison, do you think I should send it? If you think it is proper, then please pass it on. A cautious James Madison did not send the letter. So technically... This is a letter never sent, a concession never made. And the first contested presidential race, contested 1796 in history. Lester J. Kappen, the editor of the Adams-Jefferson letters, written back in the 50s, feels that this letter, if sent, might have helped heal rifts that would develop between the two men later. Before I go too far with this example, let's not forget that Jefferson became VP 
and he would be seated at the table when Adams was sworn in. So there was a whole sort of ceremony, even if there wasn't an official letter. And in 1800, when Adams loses the election and Jefferson wins, he doesn't send him a letter of congratulations either. It's just Adams writes to Jefferson, you know, I have horses in the stable and they're available for your use as the president of the United States because they belong to the U.S. government, not me. They won't talk again for 11 years. There's one concession speech that may have been the most important of all, because for a lot of these, they're simply just a procedure, simply just part of being a good candidate. Maybe if you want to future political hopes, you have to carry yourself a certain way. You look at the election of 1876 between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden of New York. Tilden wins the popular vote. And he leads in the Electoral College on the day of election, but 19 votes from three Republican-controlled states, Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina, are disputed. There's allegations of voter fraud. Congress sets up a special electoral commission to determine the winner. There's a lot of maneuvering. There's a lot of politics in Washington. But this kind of backroom commission finally announces two days before the inauguration that they will reward the electoral votes to Rutherford B. Hayes, and he will become president. A lot of people aren't happy about this. And among them is the Democratic candidate who got the most popular votes, and initially the votes of those states, Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York, the Democrat. But he does make a speech soon after, which helped to calm down his supporters, many of whom were ready to to literally get up in arms about this. Here's what Tilden says. Everybody knows that after the recent election, the men who were elected by the people, president and vice president of the United States, were counted out, and the men who were not elected were counted in and seated. I disclaim any thought of personal wrong involved in this transaction, not by any act or word of mine, shall that be dwarfed or degraded into a personal grievance. So Tilden actually isn't going to go totally nice with his concession speech here. He's still marking this as a very, very much a grievance and something that can't happen again. But here he says to his supporters, If my voice could reach throughout the country and be heard in its remoteless hamlet, I would say, Be of good cheer. The Republic will live. The institutions of our fathers are not to expire in shame. The sovereignty of the people shall be rescued from this peril and be reestablished. You had a similar theme when Gore gave his concession to Bush in 2000. I do think 1876 is as bitterly contested as 2000 was. 1876 was something closer to where Tilden's speech actually did help to cool what could have been revolution. Let's acknowledge that all this conceding, even though it's something you have to do, is not a fun act. And even candidates that have been way behind thought they were still going to win. This is a great point to make about elections. Look at the election we got right now. I'm recording this over the weekend before Election Day. We're going to know the result on Tuesday night. And what's going to happen on Wednesday is everyone's going to know that that result was going to happen and exactly how it happened. You know, the story of the election will be known then, amazingly. But you have to bring yourselves back to what it's felt like the entire uh, general election, and things aren't so clear. So George McGovern in 1972, for instance, 
He said that he never let any doubts get into him personally, that he was going to beat Nixon. There was going to be this secret turnout surge, and he was going to win, even though polls were showing him at 38%, right, right about what he got. He doesn't write a concession speech. He's campaigning till 2 a.m. on Election Day. He doesn't write a concession speech until 5 p.m. that night. Very similar in 1992 with George H.W. Bush. Staffers indicated that in the bubble, they still hoped that they were going to get a Harry Truman-type upset and beat Bill Clinton. It was the opposite in 1996. Bob Dole's speechwriter started working on a draft concession speech two weeks before Election Day. It was pretty evident what was going to happen, his speechwriter said. Another point to make here. The concession is not without benefits for the loser. It's your chance and your party's chance to paint your loss in the best light. Barry Goldwater used his telegram that he sent a little late to LBJ to issue a statement that while he accepted the result, the Republican Party would remain one of opposition, and they would win big in the 1966 midterms in two years. Concession can also justify the campaign to all the people that supported you. As George McGovern said, if we push the day of peace one day The bone-crushing effort was worth it. Well, there too, you could make a little argument that Nixon had to push peace process because of the threat of McGovern. So it's not without benefit to the person making the concession. Finally, as George H.W. Bush and Walter Mondale did, it's the chance to salute the majesty of American democracy. My feeling is that the democracy is so strong, if a candidate decides not to concede... It will be conceded for you by the process, in any case, other political leaders or the media or just the people themselves. So Clinton refuses to give a speech or Trump refuses to give a speech. It'll be a minor nick in the process and everyone will move on. I want to thank you for listening. Again, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. You can see Alf Lennon's telegram of concession and you can get our History factoid on concessions that you can share with others. Want to tell you about the premium podcast once again? Got a lot of people joining. They're not just joining all at the at the Friends of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics level, the entry level, which is just $2 a month. Yes, we've got many members there. We've also got people joining at the club level. Chad Arthur Club, Grover Cleveland Club, the Cincinnati. Each one has more benefits. You'll get PDF of the five biggest fibs in American politics. You get a PDF of the Umbrella Man series that we did on Neville Chamberlain and the misuse of Munich. So, so many little goodies. You also get a lot of archived episodes. Can be as little as $2 a month. More if you can spare more and you want more. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.